we move outside our comfort zone and seek new experiences to grow. We find adventure in the epic and the everyday. We travel to broaden our horizons and engage with nature. We are most at home in remote landscapes and faraway places, but never far from our community of passionate dreamers and wanderers. We are Chaconians. Join the Chacosphere at Chacos.com. Where will your Chacos go? This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape than beer production, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Patagonia. It's never encouraging to be awoken in a tent by headlights. I didn't have a good feeling about the boat ramp from the get-go, but another violent thunderstorm was set to roll through that night, and the area had a picnic pavilion where I could stay dry. I looked at my phone, 1.15 a.m. Nothing good ever happens past midnight. My dad used to say that, a classic explanation for a midnight curfew. It's especially true at a riverside parking lot in Georgia, illuminated by the orange halos of street lamps. I reached for my rusty machete, the only sort of intimidating thing I'd brought with me. The car rolled to a stop 30 yards away. The engine cut, but the headlights stayed on. They hit the mesh of my tent and fractured into a blinding screen of gold. All I could do was listen. Two doors opened, four feet hit the pavement, and then moved quickly, softening into the forest's pine needles. I heard sticks breaking, muffled voices. A minute later, the silhouettes passed through the headlights' glow and dropped armloads of wood into the raised barbecue grill. One boy picked up a gas tank and doused the pile. The other struck a match. Before the match even landed, a globe of flame illuminated their faces like a snapshot in sepia. I wanted to play possum, roll over, and pretend to sleep until they left. But this was exactly why I was here, a few hundred miles into a 500-mile canoe float down the big, slow, muddy brown river of my childhood. George's Chattahoochee. I came here to see the river, but really, I came here to see its people, and here they were. How's it going? I called through the mesh. Pretty good, they said. Y'all having a little campfire? Yes, sir. I decided these kids were harmless, or at least they weren't meth heads or slurring drunk. I put the machete down, grabbed my journal, pen, and camera, unzipped the mesh, and walked into the fire's yellow light. I am a Southerner, born in Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know if you can tell. A lot of people say I don't have a Southern accent. So if I drink a few beers, I can usually coax one out. Budweiser's work better than IPAs. Now I live in Seattle. I chose the West Coast in my 20s, purely out of a fascination with the huge, wild mountains and fast, white and sapphire rivers. I've had a good taste of wilderness adventures in the Cascades, Sierras, Andes, and British Columbia. And I've been as attracted to distant cultures as I have to wild landscapes. I lived for a few months in a Quechua community of Ecuador's Amazon basin. I took portraits of people in Ethiopia's Omo Valley. 
I get the same satisfaction and rush out of engaging with people different from myself as I do from an alpine climb or a scary whitewater paddle. But lately I've found myself looking back at the South, not necessarily the Atlanta South of suburbs and country clubs, but the muggy, overgrown, gothic, sweating, deep-fried, don't-give-a-damn South, the kind my mom and other Atlanta people might call common. A few years ago, I began to sense an indigenous rawness to that backwoods southern world. The people in the deep south seemed to speak in a different language and eat different foods like catfish, wild hog, gator, squirrel. I had a feeling that if I could get in deep enough, my old backyard might hold portals and discoveries to rival anything in some distant landscape. So I looked at a map of Georgia. Many small town names were familiar from summer baseball tournaments or hardy stops on the way to the beach from Atlanta. But now those towns seemed fascinating. That was the cultural wilderness I wanted to explore. I settled on a river trip. It's pretty obvious, I know. Huck Finn, the Mighty Miss, Big Muddy River. Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee, it gets hotter than Hoochie Coochie. I wondered what rivers offer best, a full story, beginning to end. The Chattahoochee took the perfect course. From the southern Appalachian Mountains, through Atlanta, down the Alabama border, to the Florida state line, and into the Gulf of Mexico. 542 miles. Wild stretches and empty forests, islands and towns, farms and boat ramps. It would move slow and thick, a perfectly paced artery through the heart of the South and its people. In late September, my dad drove me to Helen, Georgia, depositing me in the canoe at a riverside cabin. Then it started raining. It was a Sunday, and this was a biblical rain. The river rose from two feet to nine feet in ten hours. My overloaded canoe would never have made it through the flood stage waves, so I scratched my launch plans, borrowed a kayak, and spent the next few days paddling the frothy chocolate milk water with some crazy old mountain boys. Half of them had little to no whitewater experience, just a daredevil, hold my beer, watch this mentality, and the best action in town at that time was riding the flood. Some of them swam out of their boats, some of them made it down upright. All of us drank beer afterward while we pulled lost kayaks and inner tubes and backyard flood debris out of the big eddy in front of the cabin. Three days later, the rain stopped. I launched on a crisp morning and began following the hundred-year flood's pulse downriver. The rising waters had left temporary oxbow lakes on floodplain golf courses and smeared E. coli-contaminated sediment across suburban patios. It left a wake of waist-deep trash heaps on islands. Plastic bags, children's toy carts, discarded kitchen appliances, and half-deflated basketballs clung like end-times confetti to riverbank tree branches. Four hydropower dams break the natural flow of the Chattahoochee, and the Corps of Engineers normally controls that flow. So this flood was a rare burst of strength, a revolt of a river wrestled into submission by the mid-20th century's frenzy for dams. As the water moccasins and cottonmouths slid back from high ground to their riverbank homes, I started paddling the river toward Atlanta. It took three days to cross the 25 miles of Lake Lanier Flatwater, where I was the only non-motorized boat. Below that reservoir's dam, the hooch turns into a river again, moving quickly toward Atlanta. The cold water released from the bottom of the lake makes it the southernmost trout-bearing stream in the U.S. I only saw a few people, mostly fishermen, as I paddled the 48 miles of the Chattahoochee National Wreck area. 
I slept on an island of hardwood trees, tucked up under the fall foliage, hidden just enough to get away with the illegal camping. We never came to the Chattahoochee when I was growing up. I read Mark Twain and went to summer camp and occasionally camped in the mountains with my family, but we completely ignored this little seam of wilderness running through our community. I felt worlds away from my hometown on trips before, but I never expected to feel that sense of foreign exploration while sleeping within Atlanta's city limits, its hum and glow seeping through the trees. A hundred miles below the highways and overpasses of Atlanta, I started to see more river people, like those two boys making the fire. It turns out they were shining. I learned shining is hunting deer on the back roads at night from your car. The boys had gotten an order from a guy for some deer meat. They could make 40 or 50 bucks with a kill. A few hours after they'd first arrived, the boys returned to my campsite under that pavilion. They'd come across a big old buck recently hit by a car and barely alive beside the road. They shot the deer in the chest. They were excited and hollered at me as they pulled up. Get up! Get up! They pulled it by its antlers from the trunk of a 1990s Buick sedan as I got out of my tent. It lay heavy and limp in the lamplight. It was so big, the boys said, that they'd get $60 for it, enough to buy a shotgun at the pawn shop. No one I'd grown up with shot deer out of their car at night. It's illegal poaching, for one. And no one I'd known got their protein from wild game shot and butchered by a couple of teens. Here I was, floating through an underground local economy I could never have imagined for my life in Atlanta. At the Florida-Georgia line, 445 miles from the start of this journey, I portaged around the last of the Corps of Engineers dams. Here, the Chattahoochee combines with the Flint River to become the Apalachicola River. For the final 107 miles, the Apalachicola flows undammed to the Gulf of Mexico. At the end of the first day on the Appalach, I paddled into Ochizi Landing. I was surprised when some folks upriver had said to be careful around Ochizi, that some rough people hung around there. All the way down this river, I'd been treated with genuine hospitality. Even the few times my fear crept up on me, the situation had twisted into mutually curious, friendly interactions. My canoe and its pile of muddy bags and its patina of river mileage was mostly responsible, I think. The canoe represented adventure to the people who saw it. Some of the folks I met had never left their county, and my trip became a portal into a journey that many of them wanted to experience. We talked on that shared river level, about the flood, the wildlife, the fall's increasingly cold nights. I was discovering that these folks had a deep respect for the river and for the natural world. It wasn't something they talked about or studied. They just lived in it and touched it and ate from it and spilled blood in it. For them, my journey was the same thing, a physical relationship with the river. We could connect on that. No one lives on land at Ochizi. It's an off-the-grid houseboat community. Seven or eight hand-built cabins float in the big eddy, held in place by long cables connected to shore trees. Most are shuttered, just the occasional weekend fishing shack for land dwellers. But a couple sat on the porch of one. They looked permanent. I floated over and introduced myself. His name was John. She was Patricia. A white beard hung down to his chest. Dirty Coke bottle glasses clouded his eyes. Most of his front teeth were missing. His fingertips were stained either with decades of grease from his work on Texas oil rigs 
or from the blunts he smoked daily. She had a pretty middle-aged face with soft features and a subtle, easy smile. Both wore NASCAR t-shirts. They offered me a cold bush beer. They sat on their porch and told me about living full-time on the water since retiring. I sat in my canoe, bowline tied to their cleat. Patricia leaned over the porch railing to hand me catfish. It was cupped in layers of newspaper, nearly see-through from the fried grease. John sat back in an upholstered chair that belonged in a cheap office, his weight resting against the cypress wood panels. The river's whispering current underneath was the only reminder that anything like time still passed here. They told me about the thunderstorms, how it was terrifying and their favorite thing at the same time. They knew the rise and fall of the river like most people know the thermostat in their house. And they talked about the fishing. Everyone talked about the fishing. John and Patricia had no plans to leave the houseboat. It was home. I slept on land that night. In the morning, I waved to Patricia as the black water pulled me downstream. She was leaning on her porch railing, baiting a hook. She smiled and waved back. The weight of the river, the people, and this nearly complete journey filled the space behind me. I was less than 100 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. In Bluntstown, Florida, a man invited me to sleep in his backyard RV for a few nights. It was the weekend, so I attended two church services that Sunday. One was a white evangelical church, where the preacher wore a microphone piece around his ear, the wire strung over his tight three-piece suit vest, the buttons bulging over an immense stomach. He preached a fire and brimstone style, his voice lilting up and down in admonition of Muslim encroachment and a perceived attack on Christians within our own media. Then I walked a half mile away to a tiny Baptist church in the black part of town where the preacher led a congregation of 20 people, four of them his own children. They sat quietly in the red padded pews, the younger one's feet not quite touching the red carpeted floor. The sermon was of hope and eternal life for the faithful. After both services, the congregants greeted me with a kind interest as we walked out of the dark, cool churches into the thick, still, midday heat. I said I was from up around Atlanta, told them I'd arrived by canoe. I even put on a little southern accent. Maybe it was disingenuous, but it almost seemed more polite that way. Babe, I'm way down here. You know I'm way down here. Babe, I'm way down here on old Parchman's farm. Baby, please don't go. When I left, this was just going to be one of those wild hair trips. A one-time opportunity to jump ship from the everyday hustle and settle into a river's pace. I expected to meet a bunch of characters, and I expected to reach that utopian state in a long expedition when you find the rhythm and gain a heightened awareness of the present. But I never expected I'd feel so comfortable on the river and in that southern world where things move slowly and people are deeply rooted. I've been back to the deep hooch at Thanksgiving to visit friends in rural Florida, and in 2013 I returned to the source of the river, this time with my brother and a buddy and a plan to paddle source to sea again. We gathered the stories from the people and we made a documentary film about a tri-state water war that threatens the entire watershed. This river is a functioning piece of so many people's lives. It's a source of recreation, protein, contemplation, parties, and, 
for some, refuge from failed marriages, derailed careers, or simply an inability or unwillingness to fit into that real world of jobs and debts and locked doors and blown expectations. There's a connectedness to the landscape down there that isn't articulated the way it is in cities or among my tribe in the western states. It's more innate and less dwelled upon. It's not necessarily pretty, and his players aren't beautifully fit or badass. But those people I met were full of the human story. And that story had everything to do with landscape. The river doesn't offer any gifts. It just pushes onward, one way, and you either let go and float with it, or tie off to a tree and watch it go by. For me, the river's stubborn indifference scrubbed me clean of judgment. I chose to ride with it and let it pull me along. All I had to do was keep my eyes open and listen. No, Lord, where are you going when you tell me what you got? My name is David Hansen, and this is my short. Heaven's front porch, will you tell me what you got in store? And is it thunder? You can find photographs from David's first float down the Chattahoochee on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. You can find more of David's photographs and information on his documentary film, Who Owns Water, on his website, whoownswater.org. Music today by The Cassettes, Drop Top Lincoln, Jason Shaw, Big Bill Bronzy, and Denise Casey. Most of our tracks are courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley and Free Music Archive. Denise Casey is a longtime Diaries listener who has generously allowed us to use her lovely voice on our show. Thanks so much. Donations. You power the Diaries. We have a new website coming. We've used the money that has come from your kind donation to the show to build it. We will be very excited to show it later in this year. Thank you so much for the support. You make this happen. Support for the shorts comes from Chaco. With fall getting into full swing, check out their lineup of hiking boots and shoes at chacos.com. Or follow them at Twitter, at ChacoUSA. Support also comes from the good people of Patagonia who are now accepting designs for t-shirts, stickers, and buttons for their Vote for the Environment campaign. Find out more at patagonia.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly. And from Kuat Racks, the little company who knew they could make a better bike rack. This episode of The Shorts was produced by Becca Cahal and Jen Altschul. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Then I found witches who wore three-piece suits and they carried a banquet of good news.